our sermon today, uh, we are going way, 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 way back in time. And you ask how far we're going back? We are going way back into eternity past, to the day before time even began. Why, you ask? Why, why would you want to study something so ancient, something so old? What relevance does it have to those who are Uh, to those of us who are living in the church today? Well, it has every bit of relevance to those of us who are living in the church today because it is the story of where our family began. Today, we're going to begin a new sermon series called Ancestry.Div. You might have seen it on the sign out there. That is Ancestry.Divine. And we're going to be looking at the story of who we are and how we came to be. There's a lot of talk nowadays about ancestry, about where we all came from. Um, uh, They've got all these websites nowadays where you can go and trace your DNA back um, six to ten generations or whatever it is and find out where you came from and who you are, right? And find out whether you're Russian or or Scandinavian or African or Irish. Uh, You can even find out, get this, if you're one in 1,024th Native American. (laughs) That's pretty amazing, right? Um, So today, we're going to go back even further than that, though. We're going to go back to the time before the world began. Uh, We are going to go back to the time before everything that you see here today around us in the world, we'll go back to the time before that even existed. Uh, it's the time before the foundation of the world where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit existed together in and of themselves in perfect unity and love. Let me give you a layout of what we're going to be doing over the next year or so. We are going to be tracing our family history back to uh, the very beginning. We are, we are going to look at everything that the Bible has to say from Genesis to Revelation about who we are, about where we came from, and where we're going. And Chris Baker and I got together and started talking about what might be good for us to go over here as a church on Sunday morning. We agreed that it would be good to look at our family history, so that's what we're going to do. Now, why is this study important? This study is important because it tells us about who we are, it tells us about our relationship to one another, and more importantly, it tells us about our relationship to God. We who are in the church together today are part of an eternal covenant family that can never be separated. Um, And that is not just, uh, that doesn't go for just this church. When I say church, I mean the church global, the church historical, everybody who's been a part of the church from Adam until the last believer who will ever enter into it. This is every church that comes together and confesses the essentials of the faith, the things that have been handed down over the years that Pastor Baker was talking about last week. It doesn't matter if you're uh, a Roman Catholic or Orthodox or Baptist or Lutheran or Episcopalian or Pentecostal or whatever you may be. At the end of the day, we are all part of one family 
one church, this body of believers that God has called out from before time began. And this church, the universal historical church, has its beginnings in eternity past where the Father and the Son got together to make an agreement with one another, to covenant with one another. In order to save, this is why they got together, to save a people for themselves. There's an agreement between God the Father, God the Son, in eternity past, to save a people. So, here's the reason, that we might dwell together with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit forever inside of a perfect universe where we will share perfect fellowship and communion with one another and with God throughout all of eternity. So today we begin in eternity past where this all began, where this plan came together inside of the Godhead to create a people who would share this perfect fellowship with one another. And it's interesting that this plan begins within the Godhead where there was perfect unity and fellowship. And so where we're going, what God is seeking to create in the world is where we're going. It's where we begin. So it ends where it started, if that makes sense, within the fellowship of the Godhead, where there is perfect harmony, unity, community, love, and fellowship throughout all of eternity. Did you ever wonder what God was doing before the world began? Was, was God just sitting around one day, bored, thinking to himself, you know, I think I'll, I think I'll create a universe and, and put some people in it to you know, have a little entertainment for myself, as it were. Is that what God was doing in eternity past? No, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed in a perfect triunity of love where they shared fellowship with one another throughout all eternity and they had need of nothing. God is self-sufficient in and of himself. He lacks nothing. He needs no one and no thing. So in our passage today, we see that there was something that the Father sent Jesus to do. Right? Jesus does not sort of just come to earth willy-nilly hoping that his death and his life will rub off on some people and eventually um, have an effect in the world. No, he comes according to the plan that God the Father and God the Son made in eternity past where they determined to save a people for themselves. You may have picked up on this in the Gospels. When you read this, uh, when you read the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, you have this language of Jesus being sent, right? And of Jesus coming to do the will of the Father. And he says things like, my hour had not, has not yet come. And then in our passage, he says that his hour had come. So what was he sent to do? What was the will of God for him to do? What was this hour that Jesus speaks of? Today, we're going to explore those questions fully, as fully as I can at the moment. So we'll look at some of the passages that clearly set forth this plan uh, in eternity past. And interestingly enough, we're going to start at the end. <laughs> so go to Revelation, the last book of your Bible, <laughs> chapter 13. And if you go there in your pew Bibles, um, you'll have the translation that I'm going to be using. Uh, but if you brought the ESV or something else, that's fine too. But I think that the NIV gets it right in this particular passage as far as the word order is concerned. Um, 
So in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, we read these things. I'll give you guys a second to get there. Uh, But this is Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And I'll read from the NIV uh, on this verse, but the rest rest will be from the ESV. That's what I use typically. I don't know what you have, but whatever you have is fine, Um, as long as it's not a perverted translation. We could talk about that later. <laughs> um, I'm sure you guys have some good ones. I say, 13.8, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those, uh, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. Now get this. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. You hear that? The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Now, how is it that the lamb was slain from the creation of the world? I thought he wasn't slain for thousands of years after the creation of the world. But here, the text tells us that he was slain before everything that we know today began. How is that? The only way this can be is if this is something that was taking place in the mind of God. If this is something that God knew. In other words, God knows that the Lamb is going to be slain before the foundation of the world. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 1, we see the same thing. Why would God know that the Lamb is slain before the foundation? Why would this be something in the mind of God in eternity past? Why would He be thinking about this thing? That's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Because we know He's not slain for thousands of years until thousands of years later. So if you look in 1 Peter, we're going to flip around just a little bit, kind of nail some of this down, uh, looking at the kind of doing an analysis of what the Bible has to say about this particular topic. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, I think he states clearly uh, what we're saying here. Starting in verse 18. And you can read it or you can just listen. 1 Peter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed, that is the church, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What does this bit about him being foreknown mean? Theologians have said through the years, they've asked the question, does this mean that God the Father knew who Jesus was in eternity past? Does it, does it mean that God knew what he would come and do? I think that's the right answer. We know that God knew Jesus, of course. He's part of the, of the Trinity. He's part of this triune fellowship that has been taking place from all eternity. So he, he knows Jesus. He doesn't just know who he is. Rather, he knows what he's going to do. And the, and the word here uh, in 1 Peter is used, that's used as a verb. So it's something God does. To foreknow, in this particular instance, is something that God does. God foreknew. I think a better translation would be God foreordained what 
Jesus would do. It's stronger than that. Um, two more passages back in Acts chapter 2. Acts says exactly what I've just been saying. Um, if you look in chapter 2, verse 22, Peter, again, uh, speaking here, uses the same language. Of course, it's Peter. <clears throat> kind of the same uh, train of thought. This is Peter's. This is at the end of Peter's sermon uh, at Pentecost. Verse twenty-two: Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, listen, delivered up according to the definite plan. And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, lawless men crucified Jesus according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right? So these men think that they are ridding the world of Jesus, that they are uh, doing themselves a solid here <laughs> by getting rid of Jesus and, and all the trouble that he has caused for them. But they're actually doing the very thing that God had predestined for them to do from the very beginning. <clears throat> one more, and uh, it's in Acts chapter 4, so just in my Bible, i got to flip over one page, but um, Acts chapter 4, verse 23. This is after uh, the uh, apostles have been arrested for preaching, Peter and John, and they are released, and uh, the church quotes this a passage that John read this morning for our Old Testament reading. They quote that passage and then they give an interpretation of it for us in the text. In verse 22, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they, that is the church, lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now listen. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, the uh, leader of the Roman province at that time, Pilate, the Jews, they're all gathered together to do to Jesus what God had predestined to be done (laughs) from eternity past. Um, and this is a constant refrain, like I said, uh, this, this idea is in the background the entire time as you read through the gospel stories, uh, like I said, especially in John's gospel, you, you see these statements about Jesus coming to do the will of the Father, um, that he was sent to do this, uh, that his hour had not yet come. Just a couple examples here, 
I'll read them out for you from John's Gospel. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. <laughs> they asked Jesus if he had something to eat, and he says, well, my food's to do the will of him who sent me. <laughs> and to accomplish his work. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Sent. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In, in John 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. So is this thing planned down to the very hour? Yes, I would say it's planned down to the very second, the very moment of the crucifixion. And then in our passage today in John 17, uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Okay, so we know that Jesus was sent according to the will of the Father to accomplish a specific task at a specific time. And I would say that it was according to a plan that they made, even better, a covenant that they had made in eternity past. And we know that it is a covenant from the covenantal language that is used throughout Scripture to describe this thing. For instance, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he talks about the first man coming to do this, and then the last man coming to do that. Jesus is the last man, Adam is the first man. And in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, uh, all those who are in Adam die, and all those who are in Christ will be made alive. This is covenantal language. These are federal heads or representatives of the human race. Adam represents the human race in one sense, and Christ represents the human race in one sense. And the things that they do affect those that are in them, right? All those in Adam, what? Die. All those in Christ are made alive. So, what actually happened during this divine council in eternity past? Well, from, from Scripture, we can deduce that God being all-knowing uh, knew what would happen. Let me talk about the, uh, the knowledge of God for a second. God's knowledge is exhaustive. God knows everything that there is to know. We say that God is all-knowing. And since God knows everything, there's nothing that God cannot know, right? Because <laughs> if God doesn't know something, then, it, then he doesn't know everything, which is a problem. Because if God is not all-knowing, then he's not God. right? For instance, if, I, if God knows I'm going to have hamburgers for lunch today after church, can I have anything but? It's not possible, because if, if I have something other than hamburgers, but God knows it, well, then God didn't know it, and therefore God's not all-knowing, and he's not God. So God's knowledge, we can say, is decretive. When God knows something, it must happen, right? So God knows from eternity past what's going to happen when he creates. Does he not? Did God know what would take place once he created the world? And everything in it, along with man? Did God know that when he created Adam that, and, and put him in the garden and gave him a law to live by, that he would break it? He had to have, 
He had to have known this. So God knowing what we would do with that situation that we would find ourselves in, determined to do something about it in eternity past, before it all began. God knew the ruin and the destruction that we would find ourselves in, that we would plunge ourselves into. Therefore, God in His love, get that, His love, God in His love, it is His love that compels Him to do what He does for us. God in His love determined that He Son died in the world before it was ever even created. You get that? That's how God loves you. Before the first man even existed, God was already loving the human race and making provision for it in His Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus, being the good Son agreed to take upon himself, upon his own shoulders, the sin of the human race before the world even began so that we might not perish eternally. That's the love of the Son for you. Paul says in Ephesians that in love he, that is God the Father, that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Wow. John Murray says, when speaking of this passage, that that means God never contemplated us outside of Jesus Christ. God, it's something to that effect. He's he's always looking at us in Christ. And since He's always looking at us in Christ, He's always looking at us in love. Because He loves the Son, right? He loves the Son perfectly. And therefore, He loves you perfectly in Jesus Christ. God has never contemplated us any other way. In love, He predestined us. In love, He looked at the miserable state of the human race that it would find itself in and determined to save us before it all even began. This was not plan B. It was the plan from the very beginning. It was not like things went wrong. Jesus came to earth and God looked down. All of a sudden, Jesus is being crucified. Oh no, what do I do? No, this was the plan from the beginning. God determined to do this. Theologians have recognized this and said these things about the death of Christ for years. So this is how God loves us. That is how He loves you and that is how He has always loved you. He has determined to make us a part of His eternal covenant family from the very beginning. And that, my beloved brothers and sisters, is the family of which you have become a part in the church of Jesus Christ. That is who you are. That is who we are. That is our identity. Isn't that good? Isn't that good news? You walk around wondering who we are. That's who you are. That's how God looks at you. That's how God loves you. That is sure security right there. That is confidence. We're to know this and to believe this. I want to read to you an account of uh, this conversation that uh, one of our brothers and sisters from years past, John Flavel, about 300 years ago wrote. He, he writes an account of this conversation. It's sort of a mock account that he makes up 
of the conversation between God the Father and God the Son in eternity past and how that went uh, when they made this agreement uh, together. And I think he captures it well. And it's, it's uh, referred to as the Father's bargain. That's what it's called. And it's conversation between the Father and the Son. The Father speaks, Son speaks, Father speaks, the Son speaks. So they're looking at what would happen. And the Father speaks first. My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The Son speaks. O my Father, such is my love too and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath and they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. The Father, but my Son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. The Son. Content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, for so indeed it did, says Flavel, yet I am content to undertake it. End of quote. This, my beloved, is the love of God for you. God loves you. God knew you before you were ever even created. And He knew all of the sins that you would ever commit. And He knew how He would have to punish His Son in your stead, in your place. He knew that. And yet, He created you anyway. He knowing that you would do it. If I create this person, I know what they're going to do and I know how I'm going to have to punish my beloved son for them, but I'll create them anyway. And He gave you Christ so that you might live. And I, and I want to ask the same question that another one of our Christian brothers asked several generations ago. How shall we then live? How shall we then live in light of this truth? In light of all we know about what the Father was willing to give up and what the Son was willing to do 
so that we might live. How shall we then live? I want to draw three applications from this, and we'll take them one at a time. The first is if the father, and this is essentially the um, application that Flavel draws from it, if you go back and read the father's bargain. If the father and the son were willing to go to such great lengths for our, sal- for our salvation, how much more should we be willing to struggle through the various difficulties and sufferings that life presents? Number two, if the father and the son were willing to go to such great lengths so that we might share communion and fellowship with them, how much more should we struggle to share communion and fellowship with one another? And finally, number three, if Jesus was willing to be sent on this mission and to undertake the duties and the obedience and suffering that it would require, how much more should we be willing to take up the mission that God gives us? So number one, if the Father and the Son were willing to go to such great lengths for our salvation, how much more should we be willing to struggle through various trials and difficulties and sufferings that life presents? Have you thought about what Christ went through in his humiliation? The God of heaven and earth, the one in whom there is no stain or spot, the one who is light and whom there's no darkness at all, the one who is truth and cannot lie, he came and he dwelt among wicked and depraved men. He lived among us and he listened to the corrupt speech of that generation and the filthy jokes that they would tell. The one who is infinite became finite and he was hungry. And, and he was thirsty and he was tired and he was tempted and he suffered pain and He was spit upon, mocked, beaten, ridiculed. The Lord of all creation, the one in whom is life itself, died. The one in whom we live and have, live and move and have our being died for us. And it wasn't just any death, it was the terrible, wretched death of the cross where he died under the wrath of God. So when life throws at you various trials, struggles, and sufferings, remember that your Savior suffered first. Remember the life He lived and the death He died so that you might live and have true life. Number two, the Father and the Son were willing to go to such great lengths so that we might share communion and fellowship with them. How much more should we struggle to share communion and fellowship with one another? From all eternity, God the Father and God the Son dwelled in a perfect triunity of love In this community, they had need of absolutely nothing. They were totally fulfilled in themselves. They were a perfect community of love, and yet out of that love for us, they chose to create the human race, knowing full well ahead of time the ruin and destruction that we would plunge ourselves into. The father knew what he would have to give up for his son what he would have to give up for us in his son, his only son. Think about this. This is his only son, his beloved son, whom he loves more than anything he ever created. He loves Christ more than all of the planets and all of the galaxies and all of the stars and all of the suns and all of the moons and all of the angels and all of everything that he ever created. And yet he was willing to give him up for us. Why? So that we might share communion 
with him and one another. (laughs) So that we might have this. And not just now, but throughout all eternity. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that. We, we must remember in relationship with one another that this community, this thing that we're a part of that we call the church, was bought at a price. And that price was the blood of the Son of God. And that blood binds us together and it makes us who we are. So, let us work all the more harder to be in relationship with one another, to share communion with one another, to be at peace with one another, for this is and always has been the will of God for the people of God. Finally, number three, if Jesus was willing to be sent on this mission and to undertake the duties, obedience, and suffering that it would require, the mission of God, how much more should we be willing to take up the mission that he gives us? If we think about what great lengths Jesus went to to accomplish his mission, we should be all the more um, compelled to take up the work of God that he has given us to do in the world. In John's Gospel, I I read uh, one verse. uh, Jesus says things like, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. (laughs) As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Okay, so now we're taking up the mission of Jesus Christ in the world. He's given that mission to us, and we are to be Jesus Christ to those we encounter. We're to be willing to endure suffering and hardship for the sake of the gospel. We're to do the work of the kingdom. We're to be about God's kingdom business. We're to be about the business of the Father as Jesus was. And through our sacrificial lives of service, God will extend his kingdom in the world. So let us not let anything get in the mission, in in the way of our mission, uh, the mission of God that he has given us here in Princeville, Illinois. For... Our elder brother Jesus didn't let anything get in his way, and thank God he didn't. So to sum up, we should be all the more willing to struggle through difficulties, to have fellowship and communion with one another, and to be about the mission of God in the world because of the great lengths that God was willing to go through to secure our eternal place in the family of God forever. Let's pray.